Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today we're talking about Birdman, or The Unexpected Virtue of Ignorance, directed by Alejandro González Iñárritu, written by Alejandro González Iñárritu, Nicholas Giacobone, Alexander Dinalares Jr., and Armando Bow, based on the play by Raymond Carver. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Arant. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetos. Hi. We've had a lot of very long uh, movie titles and like yeah. screenwriters this year already. <laughs> Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Mm-hmm. But I'm excited to be talking about Birdman because this is one of the most requested screenplays for Lessons from the Screenplay, interestingly enough. And I remember when I started to see all those requests on the channel, I was like, well, I saw Birdman and I liked it, but I wasn't like obsessed with it the way that it seems like so many people were. And so it was really interesting to finally revisit it and see because I hadn't seen it since theaters. And watching it last night throughout the movie, I was kind of saying to myself, is this one of my favorite movies? Like, do I love this movie? Mm Because I think I do. Yeah. (laughs) And so it was really interesting to go on that journey. And I think one of the things that held me back the first time was the long takiness and you know the cinematography, which we can talk about, where I can't help but on especially a first viewing of something that is presenting itself as if it's all one shot to be constantly looking for the stitches or how are they doing that or doing this effect. Mm -hmm. I go into filmmaker brain and I'm not caught up in the movie as much. And that was definitely something that happened in this film. But what I think worked for me this time about the long take aspect, the movie is not trying to pretend that all of this happened in real time. Right. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that about it. I feel like that gives so much more room to it and allows the long take to be doing aesthetic story work and not just be a cool thing. But it's it's right taking you across three, four days time all in one shot. And the way it can blend space and time in this kind of surreal way, I think really enhances the emotionality of it. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about this use of a long take, it's using the long take form for a more like abstract reason. It's not the usual reasons. Usually it's like the children of men. We're going to immerse you in this documentary intense mm-hmm. sequence where the real timeness enhances the tension because you you can't look away. It's so interesting to watch how he took this format that is normally used for a very specific purpose and actually used it to do these really subtle emotional thematic things that almost like bringing out like character psychology and surrealism and yeah collapsing space and time and and i i really appreciate it on this on this watch through because i agree with you michael i think on the first run i was confused i was like wait a minute i heard this movie was a long take movie and that means it's going to be okay it's going to be all in one night it's the night of the show and we're going to watch it happen in real time And then when they started to jump ahead in time and blend together different sequences, I was kind of bothered. I was like, wait, this isn't a long take. What is this? This is some (laughs) other thing. And in this viewing, I really embraced that it was this other thing. And the long take is there to create a a tone, a mood, an emotional state of mind, not Mm -hmm. to create this documentary sense of real time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking there's a difference between invisible cuts and hidden cuts. And what I mean by that is a hidden cut is you don't know there's a cut. I'm sure there are plenty of those in this movie that we don't realize. But invisible means, you know, you go in through a door and it's a very dark room and suddenly the screen goes black for a second. Then you come out the other side. The cut is invisible in the sense that you didn't actually see a cut, but it's not hidden. It's it's a movie saying, look, we're not trying to pretend that we're not filming a new sequence here. So it's like you were saying, Michael, appreciating that it's not trying to do this sort of pretend this is all done in one take thing. And it bothers me, or at least it did bother me, when you look at something like 1917, like however you feel about 1917, that is a movie where the single takeness of it is part of the plot of the movie. It Mm -hmm. is this character only has this amount of time to get to this thing. So by doing it in real time, we are putting you in to the reality of the situation. And Birdman is very clearly not trying to do that. So I thought, well, then what's the point of it? Like, why do I need to watch someone walk for 30 seconds from one room to another if if no story is happening here? But I think that what it does do really well, as you guys were saying with the sort of emotion of it, 
is there's this chaos and anxiety to this movie, you know, and the single takeness of it doesn't ever let you release from it. And then the drum score is adding to, (laughs) you know, this sort of like there's Mm -hmm. this, this very kinetic, frenetic thing. And this movie is about theater and what is theater, but it's, you know, a long single take that you, that there's no cuts in and everything. So I do appreciate that even though it's not, it doesn't sort of do what single takes usually do in movies, that it still serves a function. I mean, exactly. And I think, you know, you guys have said this, but single takes in movies nearly always, and I really can't off the top of my head, think of any examples other than Birdman where it doesn't do this. Single takes are trying to signal to us that something is real, that there's mm-hmm. a reality happening. Birdman, I mean, if they, if someone else has one off the top of their head where there's like the whole movie is a single take or even there's an incredibly long single take. And in fact, it's trying to signal the opposite of something is real, like the way that Birdman is. I would be interested to hear about it. But, you know, in this case, as you mentioned, I think, Michael, it is doing something thematic because I think the nature of reality is a theme that this movie is interested in. Like, I would say maybe the central question of this movie is what is real and does something have to be real? in order to be virtuous <laughs> or art, if you want to think of it that way, right? Right. So I think that that's kind of the at the heart of the movie. The other interesting thing, though, that the one take does is unsettle us in the way that you mentioned, Brian, and particularly with its POV. I think if you were expecting this movie, okay, it's like, well, we're doing a long take. We are not doing it in real time. We're going to cover four days of time or however many days of time. So then you might think, well, great, then maybe we're in one particular character's psychology. Maybe the one takeness is designed to put us, you know, maybe only in Riggin's head, for example. And I do think, you know, Riggin kind of spirals down here into he kind of loses his grip on reality, right? And (laughs) and you might expect that the one take is serving the purpose of putting us squarely in Reagan's headspace. But it actually doesn't do that either because it's cutting around and like we as the camera are moving independently of Reagan. Mm -hmm. And so we're visiting all of these other places where we're talking to Emma Stone's character, Sam, while she's talking to Edward Norton's character, Mike, and they're out on the balcony. And then, you know, we're visiting the two uh, actresses, Leslie and Laura, in their dressing room and whatever. Mm -hmm. The one take doesn't seem to be doing anything other than forcing us to grapple with all of the different pieces of this theme or different angles on this theme that are being explored. And I really love that. Like, I had the same experience that you did, Michael, where when I was watching it recently, I was like, this movie rules. <laughs> it's so good. It's so it. I don't know. Yeah. It's really good. Like, I, I love this movie much more than I realized I did. Yeah. Same. Yeah. I, I had a similar thing. Um, I mentioned when I saw Scott Pilgrim for the first time, I was like, man, I really wanted to love this movie. And I thought it was like pretty good. And then watching it three more times, maybe or two more times, I was like, oh, I really do love this movie. It's yeah. one of my favorite movies of all time. And Birdman sort of has a Scott Pilgrim trailer. Like it's all the like last 20 minutes of the movie as opposed to most movies where mm-hmm. it's the first 20. So you've got the giant mechanical, you know, bird attacking the city and all this kind of stuff. And Love I was like, it. oh, I'm so on board for this movie. And then it's not that movie, really. It's it's more of a sort of um, bizarre comedy drama, you know, tense kind of thing. So I think the first couple times I watched the movie, I was like, I do like this, but it's I was like expecting it to be one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's still not one of my favorite movies of all time. But as you guys were saying, the more I watch it, the more I do like it a lot. And the more I'm like, okay, if I was going to redo my 2010s list, it would be contender at the very least. Right. That was kind of the thought I was having too. It was like, oh, I think I I should have put that on the list. (laughs) And I think like what you're saying, Trisha, is is another thing that's so remarkable and, and what made me kind of appreciate this more is that it, like you're saying that the long take could have just been tied to a single perspective or no perspective but it somehow does switch povs like sometimes we are with mm-hmm. regan but sometimes we are with other characters and sometimes we're not quite with anybody and i think there, there's kind of this it almost feels like an evolution of film language of using this long take in this way and there are lots of moments where i think the long take isn't also trying to impress me with how long takey it is. Like there are definitely moments where they're stitching things or there's visual effects being used in a way that maybe can draw attention. But there's also plenty of moments where 
you know, you're just with these two characters for a really long time. And then you turn a corner and realize there's a whole audience full of people that were there the whole time. And like, you don't feel the urgency in the intimate scene because they know like, well, and then there's going to be a big reveal later. Like the camera feels very patient and like, it's fine being where Mm -hmm. it is. And I think a lot of long takes have a sort of, are trying to create a momentum and urgency and this camera has a lot of different personalities that it switches between. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's a very good way of putting it. The frames that the camera finds, yeah, in these moments are always beautiful, like perfect frames. So sometimes when you're watching a long take, when it's trying to do that more real time documentary thing, you have to kind of forgive it. You have to forgive the frame for not being perfect because oh, it's part of a long take. So I can't be expected to have this scene feel like a normal scene in the way it's shot because it's part of this sequence that is attempting to do this long take thing i have to kind of lower my expectations for individual moments in this otherwise impressive feat this movie doesn't ask me to do that like i just lose myself in long character scenes because the way it's shot just feels right it doesn't feel like i'm making an exception because i know it's part of a long take yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. We talked about the uh, the Spielberg oneer before, I think in Minority Report, mm. where it's like Spielberg will sort of just move the camera from one shot to a different shot, but they're both great shots. So it's not just right. oh the camera's just swimming around finding things. Mm-hmm. It's we found two really good shots, but then we captured both of them without cutting and that's always impressive and this movie does that a lot the my favorite one i think is when edward norton is naked looking in the mirror and emma stone (laughs) is in the room Uh and then naomi watts comes back and then it's naomi watts in the foreground uh edward norton in the middle of the frame you know both in his ass (laughs) you know and then his reflection (laughs) in the mirror and then through the mirror you see a slightly out of focus emma stone but you still see enough of her to like kind of see that her mouth is moving and see what she's doing and stuff and i'm just like to pull that off in a movie that is doing like a long take kind of thing but then the other side of the spectrum is you do get these character moments that feel very real because you're not doing a lot of cutting yeah right and i think that like that's something i've mentioned before that i love uh and i we you got a lot in like the 70s you don't get a lot these days is let's just put a camera in a wide shot and be with these people for a few minutes that's fine if the writing is good and the acting is good like we don't need to cut a close-up on someone's face to see that they're upset we can tell they're upset in the wide you don't need to keep doing this uh so you get that with this movie too you get like the really nice shot composition but also the we're just going to kind of hang out with these characters and you're going to watch them you know be with each other well and you know i've read a, a decent amount of actors kind of speaking about the process of shooting it what you're doing or or what inyaritu is doing here is creating this performative live theater kind of feeling on the set by having to do these long takes over and over again where there's it requires this like sort of pins and needles like presence from the actors Mm -hmm. where they have to be on 100% of the time because there's 20 other people or 40 other people or however many you know counting on okay, the camera's going to flip and come to me, you know, right after this, and I have to be here and ready. You know, so much of this movie thematically is about performance and like the performative nature of what it means to sort of be an artist and the tension between like performing for theater versus performing for film. So what you get is these long sort of play like experiences Mm -hmm. when you're watching the scenes, especially in the long dialogue scenes where you know that the actors are just in the room doing the dialogue the way that they're doing in a play right? or would be doing in a play. We're not just cutting and we're not using the 97th take of this thing. However many takes you've done, it doesn't matter. Every single person that's there is as present as they would have to be in a theater sort of type performance space. If you want, you could look up a lot of wonderful quotes about the people, you know, from the actors, three of whom were nominated for Oscars for this, Mm -hmm. about sort of the like fury and the like needing to be just completely on and vulnerable all the time when you're shooting this way. You know, like you just mentioned, three of them were nominated for Oscars. All of the actors are incredible. They are. And I I feel like that's that allows you to do things like this also. And I think it worked out so well in this where it's the cinematography, I think, makes the actors better. And the actors are the only reason you can do that cinematography in the first place. Right. And it's also actors acting as actors 
And like, there's there's so many meta right. acting things happening that all sometimes happen in a single shot. And the introduction of Edward Norton's character, I think, is perfection. Just, mm. It's perfection. It's what an amazing scene. Right. It's so real. You see him going through all those levels of like, I'm acting like I'm acting, but now I'm acting like I'm acting like I'm acting like there's just so much <laughs> happening. And it's just so wonderful to watch. And it's just it's a well written scene. And it does so much character work. Yeah. And so it's just working on all these levels. And it's just a delight. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you have Michael Keaton as the one time superhero, you know, who's like still living in the shadow of that and stuff. So you've got that meta aspect. I didn't buy Edward Norton as a controlling hard to work with actor, though. I mean, that's... <laughs> How unrealistic. <laughs> JK Ed. You know, he too talked about in, in an interview that during the scene, they were rehearsing the scene where Edward Norton's character is giving notes to Michael Keaton, the director, about how to change the script. And Edward Norton started giving Inaritu uh-huh. quotes or, and suggestions. <laughs> and he was like, do you see what you're doing? Do you see how we're embodying everything? And it was, yeah, just a funny onset story. Wow. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, the film really reminds me, it's very Charlie Kaufman-esque, it mm-hmm. being totally. John Malkovich adaptation, and it really like adaptation in a lot of ways in its conversation with the industry and with yeah. being an artist, what does it mean to create and, you know, critics and reception and all these questions. Influencers and those YouTube peoples. And- well, and that's that's what's fun about it is that it's kind of, we haven't really had a Kaufman adaptation movie in this era of Twitter mm. and viral videos, superhero and influencers, movies. superhero <laughs> movies. So it, it's kind of nice because you were kind of getting like the Kaufman treatment of this era when you know I love Emma Stone's monologue to him. Yeah, when she explains, you know, what does it mean to actually mean anything to anybody? Like the thing you're doing is for a bunch of old, rich white people in an audience on Broadway. Who cares, Dad? <laughs> There's <laughs> such great great stuff in here that is very specific to this era Mm -hmm. and what's happening to the industry and how are actors and directors and creatives dealing with the internet age and what does that mean for all sorts of art forms Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's the the meta-ness of this movie is really satisfying and almost even more now upon reflection than when it came out like i I resonate even Mm -hmm. more strongly with the conversation it's having about what does any of this mean? Like, if all that matters is that you went viral because of a weird video of you in your underwear, which is <laughs> reflective of reality right now, like, mm-hmm. what does anything mean anymore? It's also interesting that, like, this is post Emma Stone being in two Spider Man movies and pre right. Michael okay. Keaton being in a Spider Man movie. There's right. a, lot of, yeah, a lot of layers happening. And Spider Man shows up in the final montage. Right. Yeah. This movie is much more concerned with. Like I was saying, the performance aspect, but also the sort of like parasocial relationship between an audience, especially like an internet audience or or a live audience with a performer than something like adaptation is, right? A lot of the times when we, we get these sort of behind the scenes movies, which I think this is safe to say it's like a behind the scenes. It's a behind yeah. the scenes theater movie. Yeah. Which is interesting. You know, it's got mm-hmm, a noises right. off vibe to it, but mm-hmm. noises off is a play <laughs> right. about plays. And a movie. Well, you know, yeah, it is. <laughs> but I'm saying, you know, it's kind of crossing genres there where it's mm. a behind the scenes thing in a different medium for the purpose of it sort of contrasting, comparing and contrasting the right. different media that it's dealing with here. It's not just about the lives of the performers. It's also about the sort of relationship we have with them and that critics have with them and the way that we mm-hmm. perceive them and their value. And so that's one thing that I love. I mean, I could and and have talked about Birdman for a while in terms of themes. But yeah, one thing that I love that it does is force us as audience members to include ourselves in the story and and ask ourselves, like, what is our parasocial relationship with Michael Keaton Mm -hmm. and Edward (laughs) Norton as humans, which they are, but then they're playing actors who are playing characters. You know, it's making us sit in that in a really interesting way that I think is super cool. Also, you've got 
Naomi Watts doing lesbian things in a movie where reality is in question. You know, like <laughs> just talked about Mulholland Drive on our top. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My girlfriend was like, "Didn't we just watch this?" <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Talking about character design and making them feel like real and three dimensional. They are all working in this thematic level, and they're also we get the chance to see them each in kind of like a range of lights. Like every character is right about something and every character is wrong about mm-hmm. something. Like I love, you know, Edward Norton comes in as kind of antagonist. I'm here. I'm everything that you're not Riggin. And I'm like this like <laughs> great thespian and I'm going to teach you how to act. So he's presented in this way. And he, there's so much time he spent as this, you know, know-it-all. And he's giving that like monologue to him and Michael Keaton as they're walking. And then they go into the bar and he ends the monologue with like, this is New York. Actually, no one here even cares about you. And then immediately a fan shows up and it's like, oh, my yeah. God, it's yeah, yeah. Rick and like, can I get your autograph? And you see like even Edward Doran's character has to kind of like eat crow there. And like so you get to see everybody. Yeah, just in this full spectrum of emotions. And I think that's I really appreciated that every character gets to have a little bit of an arc and see when they're right and when they're wrong. And it makes them feel believable in a way that I really appreciated. Definitely. I think one of the major just thematic things I get from this movie is it's about ego. It's about Mm -hmm. what is it like all these people are in this business that encourages ego, like big egos. Like you are a celebrity. You are the best actor in all of Broadway. You get the best reviews. It's all about puffing yourself up your individual self as this product. And I love that the movie reveals the vulnerability of all of these people who are trying to project an image because they're actors, because they're celebrities, they're directors, whatever you get to see underneath that projection. They're all, you know, very vulnerable and flawed and often very like soft hearted uh, underneath the projections that they're putting out there. Well, and kind of, you know, the same way that you get to see both sides of all the characters. I think you get to see both sides of that ego argument also, where it's making fun of how, seriously we take these things that are kind of silly but at the same time you get to see you know Reagan is putting everything out there like there is a lot of vulnerability there is a lot of risk right he has that whole monologue to the reviewer where he's like you risk nothing i'm risking everything does that mean it's good i don't know but like that is an actual valid part there is like emotional vulnerability there mike edward norton's character you know is a dick But he also gets to talk about like when I'm out there on stage, like I am real, like you get to see that there is value amidst all this weirdness and the kind of celebration of like you're saying ego and fame and all that. Like there is artistic merit in there. There is something worthwhile in there at the same time. Like the movie isn't dismissing one or the other. I think it's it's examining how all these things are constantly at play together. It's a nuanced conversation about a lot right. of questions. It's yeah. not giving any hard answers. Yeah. Right. The double-edged sword, or you could say like two sides of the coin of being an artist are you're giving something tremendous to the world potentially. And also you're indulging something in yourself, right? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. like mm-hmm. es- right. essentially self-centered and self-indulgent. And this movie is really meditating on both of those things, which is, you know, in order to be an artist at all, you have to believe on some basic level that the thing that you are creating is worth giving to the world, right? Like the only reason anybody writes anything down or like puts themselves out, they write a song or they, you know, whatever it is, they put themselves out there is because we have a belief that whatever it is that we are creating is worthwhile and valuable, which is egotistical, you Mm -hmm. could say, right? Like on a very basic level that there's something valuable about our existences. The movie really grapples with, the movie opens with this image of a comet streaking toward Earth, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And goes back to that at the end, which, you know, I often forget that that's how this movie sort of opens and and returns. (laughs) Emma Stone's character reminds us of that too, about how unimportant we are where she's got the toilet paper and she's right. like, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. this is our, our existence and it means nothing, right? There is a fundamental egotism to being a creator and being mm-hmm. an artist. And we see the dark side of that, all of this self-indulgence, depression, like... Neglecting his daughter. 
right self-hate self-doubt addiction like you know substance abuse like that entire thing we see the dark side of that we also see the value of it in this movie and i think that the fact that it doesn't offer us like a neat and tidy conclusion about any of it is one of the things i love most right yeah i remember reading uh leonard cohen saying in an interview once like well it takes a certain amount of arrogance to be to, to be an artist, basically. And I was talking about it with my mom and she said, well, I don't think anybody should be arrogant. I said, yeah, but you have to look at it from the <laughs> point of view of like, if nobody had any sort of, I guess I could say confidence, you know, that their stuff was important, then they would never show it to anybody. They would never try to, you know, audition for a movie or they would never try to get their book published or they would never try to get their screenplay made or whatever. So it's like you have to find that balance between having enough almost arrogance, sort of enough hyper confidence in yourself to believe that your thing is important but also not going, not being Mike Shiner, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And part of the meta-ness of all this is this movie opens in a fairly pretentious way. You know, it it, it begins with like a a quote on screen. Mm -hmm. It opens with Michael Keaton and Tidy Whitey's levitating uh, in, in you know, like a meditative position. This place is horrible. (laughs) So it's interesting because the movie itself almost puts it out there of like, this is one of these highbrow movies like this is a thinking man's movie this is like just for example like my husband was sitting next to me on the couch as the movie started and he was just like oh this is going to be one of those movies (laughs) where it's like this is going to like talk down to me this is going to be like a highbrow did he end up liking it uh no he went off and did other stuff (laughs) (laughs) fair if you're just like a normal person who just like is like i'm gonna go watch a movie the beginning of this movie is fairly alienating it's it doesn't Hmm. it drops you in to like a tone that's going to be like this is like a movie for movie people you guys so i i I just think it's part of the interesting meta conversation that this movie seems to be almost Mm -hmm. aware of it's like if i'm making a movie for movie people right like what does that mean also like it's like doing a broadway show for a bunch of ritual white people in new york like you're making a thing for them is that like what does that mean however we we all like a movie that is for movie people who want to think about all these themes, who care about these things. So thank you for making this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, I just found that to be a really interesting study and maybe different audience goers who are just there to like, what's the genre? What's the experience I'm going to get? I'm, I'm down for that movie. What is this? <laughs> what am I looking at? It's an interesting way to start a movie off that is also about what actually reaches people. Mm-hmm. If you're making something for this niche intellectual class like do you matter you know it's it's a lot of interesting questions that are like baked into the actual movie itself and i think that we have fallen into this sort of i was gonna say dichotomy but what i mean is like binary even on this podcast where you know we're like is this a movie or is this a film right Mm -hmm. Uh i think the natural tendency because film is a medium that as like an artistic medium, potentially, if we can put it that way, has the potential to be incredibly mindless, sort of like popcorn, not challenging in any way, pure entertainment, and also has the potential to be like high art, if we want to put it that way. Even and maybe especially those of us that work in it have the tendency to create a binary about it where it's like either it is one of those films, as your husband says, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> it is an artistic film that's here to win a bunch of Oscars and, right. and appeal to critics, right? The difference between like a critic's view and an audience view. We have those two things on on our like Rotten Tomatoes websites where it's like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, here's what the critics say. Here's what the average audience member says. And sometimes those are really different numbers, right? And And the movie is kind of, actually asking us to sort of interrogate like okay so if it's birdman you have a very popcorn movie title right like birdman Uh and they talk about birdman 4 then the subtitle is the unexpected virtue of ignorance so the the movie is mashing these kinds of ideas about film together at every moment i love it (laughs) (laughs) right it's part of it reminds me of like the Kaufman spiraling in on itself genius. You know, it's just yeah. it's very integrated at every level. It's asking these questions. Exactly. And also just functioning as the story also like it's also just compelling right. to watch, you know, are they going to get the play up in time? Right. It's a ticking clock. Yeah, there's a plot. So, which is always useful to to make it appealing to as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Rotten Tomatoes, the fact that 
the whole site is basically based on this binary movie good movie bad thing is like the most <laughs> meta bs like self-defeating thing i've ever heard of and that kind of fits exactly with what we're talking about it's like it's not things are not just one thing or another it's like oh how was that movie was it good it's like i very few movies can answer that question in like one word it's like there's a lot going on you know i'm reminded of the scene where the critics are are there like the interviewers are here there to talk to Reagan, mm-hmm. and there's the one who's like well as carl Barth says yeah the, right. uh you know and he's got this like long pretentious quote and he's like wants to talk to Reagan about like greek mythology and birdman whatever and then there's another person that's like do you inject yourself with baby baby pig <laughs> semen for your yeah. face <laughs> right it's like right. The movie is doing those two things at once, too, where it's like, these are the two kinds of viewers there are, right? right. It's inviting you to kind of, <laughs> it's creating a binary even again in the viewers. And so, and and the critic is, the critic, her entire thing is, there's theater and this is our space and you don't get to come in here with your cartoons and pornography. And then there's what you make, which is superhero movies. Right. And those two things are worlds apart. So how dare you? You were saying off mic that there's so many different themes in this movie. It, Tons. It's doing yeah, a yeah. lot at once. And and then there's this other, there's like the LA New York split that it's interrogating. Oh, yeah. Right. Totally. There's, yeah, there's like the New York Times reviewer personality, which, you know, there's this reverence for the theater. There's this idea that theater acting is of this. It's almost the way we talk about movies and film. It's like right, another one right. of these dichotomies. Yep. Like theater is more of like the real deal. Movies are for babies, for children, you know, teenage teenagers who want to watch Birdman <laughs> explode things. <laughs> I feel like Inuritha was just taking so much like angst that he was feeling about this whole business, everything about it, and just managed to put it all into one movie and it held together somehow, which is mm-hmm. remarkable. Yeah. Well, and that he made it funny also, because I, I don't yes. feel like this is a movie that was made for him. You know, sometimes I think there can be mm. movies that are like, audience, I need you to watch this because I'm dealing with stuff. And so I had to make a movie about it to deal with it. And I feel like this movie feels completely generous while also doing this. Like it's fun and entertaining and there are just yeah sequences that are didn't need to be as elaborate and goofy and entertaining as as they were and so i i think that's what i really appreciate about it is that's and this is kind of yeah again investigating this thing as you know who are you as an artist and what are you trying to do and as you were saying brian like holding this uh yeah a certain amount of yeah ego of like what i have to say is worthwhile but also, you know, it's got to be for me, but it also needs to be for other people. Like other it people does. have right. to care. <laughs> and how do you hold both of those things? And I think it can kind of drive you crazy as a creator mm-hmm. trying to navigate all of that. And so I think that this movie, in my opinion, navigates all that and makes it for other people, but about things that clearly he has thought about. <laughs> it's just like, that's the goal. Like, that's what you want to try to hit. And it's a hard target to hit. And it's very impressive that they accomplished it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I love the Birdman character because he becomes a literal character. Mm -hmm. But I think it's doing the exact same thing. I think it's doing exactly what you're talking about, Michael, which is that you have Riggan who has literally like split his talent into in his brain. Like I could be Birdman, which is for the public and the masses and they Mm -hmm. love Birdman. Or I could be this, you know, very serious artist who's doing this Raymond Carver play. And somehow he can't be both or like he feels that he can't be both. He isn't sure which one he wants to be or he isn't sure which one is more useful mm-hmm. or matters, right? Or mm-hmm. is more honest. He doesn't know any of the answers to those questions. He's worried. Like there's this menace to the way that the Birdman character is portrayed where he's kind of scary. And Riggin like is kind of trying to get rid of him because he gets the sense of like, what if that's really all I am? What if I'm I'm only Birdman, right? Basically, at the end of the day. And so it's interesting how it's 
psychologically, you know, there are certainly other movies where an internal conflict is manifest externally. But I think it's really cool the way that it's done here, where we know that Birdman isn't real necessarily, but he is doing something very important in the story. And of course, we can talk about that scene where... (laughs) He shows up and it it's awesome. Yeah, his his function isn't the same as like a Tyler Durden or a right. Hitler and Jojo Rabbit, where it's like the, the function of this character is to be this very antagonistic internal struggle, you know, internal conflict kind of character. He's more there to be an internal conflict character for sure, but also just to give us to sort of clue us into the dialogue that he's having with himself, you know. But I like that he's sort of presented in a in a more backgroundy kind of way than being sort of doing something we've seen before where it's like then he has to like kill birdman in order to <laughs> right yeah no one wants that version of yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 but black swan basically is what you're saying <laughs> <laughs> stab birdman <laughs> I, I didn't say it someone else said it <laughs> i like black swan we'll talk about that one day some of I us i love black swan some of us will and this is kind of getting at a, a question that i i kind of want to Pose to you mm. guys and i i haven't had a whole lot of time to think about it since watching the movie last night so i haven't done any kind of really deep structural analysis but i was trying to figure out do i think this is a disillusionment arc do i think Mm. this is a positive change arc and i feel like part of why it's kind of opaque is that birdman it like his relationship with birdman like you're saying brian isn't so clear-cut it isn't just you gotta kill birdman and then everything's fine it's it feels like there's more nuance happening and so i'm i'm kind of curious just to hear how you guys read it and maybe this you know will kind of necessarily inform talking about the end and how we read the ending yeah i mean in order to know what the arc of a movie is you need to know what the ending of the movie is what does the ending mean (laughs) right well so i guess that's maybe i i just want to hear your guys takes on the ending and i guess that can inform this kind of structural question so yeah alex what do you think I think yeah, the ending kind of bewildered me when I first saw it and struck me on more of an emotional level than a logical level. And that whole final sequence in the hospital room, I love it because it almost goes into this realm of satire because, you know, he has the amazing review. He's breathed new life into theater by literally blowing his nose off on stage. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's great right. satire. And, you know, it's like Zach Galifianakis' character. He's like, you did it. You did it. They're holding a vigil for you outside. Like, this is it, man. Like, it, it's such a commentary on our weird tabloid yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. social media mm-hmm. culture. So I love the satirical aspect of it. But then when it gets to the ending ending, there's an emotion and tone to it that feels like he's free. I interpret it a lot like if this whole movie was him concerned about his legacy and concerned about, am I going to just be Birdman? Do I need to also go down as having this comeback where I was a real artist? Mm-hmm. He, he's, you know, refinancing his house that's supposed to go to his daughter to make sure he can do this play to have his comeback to not just be Birdman. He's so concerned with that image of himself. And there's something about him disappearing out the window. And then Emma Stone's reaction to him disappearing out the window that seems to just poetically suggest he's free. Like mm-hmm. He, mm-hmm. that ego burden has been taken away. In that sense, it feels like a positive change arc because it feels like he he is this man who is so tormented by the expectations he's put on himself as needing to have relevance and to have his career mean something and not just be this guy who was this Birdman once and that can't be it and it seems like at the end the way I could interpret it the emotion of it seems to be that he's free of the whole question like mm-hmm. almost who cares right regardless of the mechanics of what occurred that's the the sense sure actually happened yeah I can't interpret it literally because Emma Stone's reaction complicates any literal interpretation right. so right. It's it's there to just kind of screw with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely interesting because there is the one cut that we have before that ending scene. So right. you can interpret it as we've presented this entire movie as one cut. Then we cut. We have this little mini montage. And then we have the hospital scene. So right off the bat, you can interpret it as he died on stage and everything else is, is just dream world or something. Because right. why else? do a cut you can very easily you know go from the stage out the window into the hospital unless you know you've run out of money at that point you're guessing to not have. <laughs> but you know so very clearly they are um making a point by inserting that cut and of course i do appreciate in the the first 
cut of the movie as in everything up until the last 10 minutes, you see Riggin do magical things. And it's suggested most of the movie that they're not real. Like it seems pretty clear. You're not supposed to assume he right. has magical powers, but then it's, I, I like that it's paid off when he lands after his flight and the cab driver gets out and says, he didn't pay me. Like they, very clearly say, in case you thought Riggin had special power, he definitely does not. He did not fly here. Right? Yeah, none of this is real. <laughs> and then, of course, you end the movie with the first time another character sees him, you know, ostensibly do something magical. So for me, it's you know, we talked about the end of Fight Club where it's, oh, how does Jack shoot himself in the side of the face? But like Tyler gets shot and it's like, well, it doesn't matter because Tyler's not real. The whole point is that he he had this sort of mental victory, you know? And then on the other end, you have something like Inception, where it's like, Nolan said, well, the important thing is that, you know, Leo had his... I'm like, yeah, but the entire movie either happened or it didn't. And like, that's really frustrating, you know? And I think Birdman is sort of somewhere in the middle for me, where on one hand, I can just appreciate it on just an emotional thematic. I don't really care what actually happened because of everything you guys were just talking about. But then on the other hand, it is... But part of my interpretation of this movie is does necessitate me actually having a better understanding of what what actually happens. Forget about what it means. You know, I can I understand I understand what your thing means. I don't understand what your thing is, which is like a complicated, usually the opposite right, right. of what you, what you experience. Yeah. I'm kind of with Alex on this, where I absolutely don't read this as a negative change arc or a disillusionment arc. I think that, you know, there's a there's a quest for peace here right Riggin is when we first meet him he's meditating and he's clearly looking for some kind of peace in his life right he's risking everything it feels like you know he's kind of pushed all of his chips into the center of the table on this particular play because he desperately needs to resolve something that's unresolved in his life and of course we we see that this road leads him to this self-destructive place where he's willing to shoot himself you know, live on stage and, and probably, you know, and as far as we know, and his own life was his intention, you know, from that. And he happens to survive it. Even so, though, after that happens, it does seem like he finds a piece. So I got to talk about this movie for more than an hour with the lovely Tom from Oxide Film uh, last year. And Oxide Film is a, a podcast. And I was invited on to, to talk about Ignati too, generally, and but specifically about Birdman. And one of the things that I'm now completely stuck on, and I got to talk about it a little bit with Tom. And now, you know, I promise to repeat it exactly because I have my thoughts have evolved a little bit. But the movie opens with this poem. As Alex, you mentioned, there's a quote at the beginning. It's called Late Fragment. The lines are, and did you get what you wanted from this life even so? I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. And that is a poem that is in inscribed on Raymond Carver's tombstone. Hmm. Raymond Carver, you know, was an artist who notoriously was abusive to people in his life. He was a rampant alcoholic um, who did end up getting sober later in his life, but still died very young and was, you know, just sort of a, a quintessentially self-indulgent, self-loathing, you know, depressive, all of these things that we've talked about, like the negative side of being an artist. To me, when I think about the end of this movie, I think about the relationship that uh, Riggin sort of manages to resolve with his daughter. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, the only two people left in the room are him and Sam. And there's that beautiful shot where she has her head lying on his chest mm -hmm. and when he's in the hospital. And of course, it's through her eyes that we are sort of looking at the ending. Because when you think about a quote like this, to call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth, it sort of asks inherently, like beloved by whom, mm -hmm. right? Right. Who do you need to love you in order to get what you want from this life? The strong implication at the end of this movie is that Riggin, his daughter's love ends up being kind of enough to put that to create that peace for him. And also that he's able to sort of, you know, he sees Birdman that one last time in the bathroom at the hospital, <laughs> but he kind of tells him off, right? right? And so there's that sense of whatever he was seeking, whatever peace he was seeking by going down this road has kind of, he's kind of reached it. You know, regardless of how you read the ending, I agree with you, Alex. I think that there's, there is a resolution for Riggin here. And I, I think it's a positive one for sure. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's very clear that, his daughter is a huge part of what the ending means. You know, mm -hmm. his relationship with her is what it's about. Yeah. 
yeah, because of that beautiful shot where she is connecting with him, laying on his chest, it does feel like their relationship has healed, has a new beginning. And he, yeah, he has her love in a way he didn't before. And I, I love your interpretation, Trisha, that, you know, that quote, the character of Riggin is interpreting it most of the movie of, I need this group of people to love me. You know, the critics or the audience or, you know, the, the, the dichotomy of, can I have both of them even? Like, if I get the audience, I lose the critics or vice versa. Right. And, uh, and none of that matters if you realize what's actually important in life is, you know, this person, this child of yours loves you. That's it. You're good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think it feels a little muddy to me, not necessarily even in, in a bad way, but, you know, he's in the hospital. He's alive, but he's shot off his nose. So he still kind of looks like James Caan. Right. <laughs> like, like that. Right. But like the bandages like form a yeah, beak. Yeah, yeah. But mm. then he takes it off. But then he still kind of looks like he has the Birdman makeup on. So there's enough there that I think it's it, it there's it's a little tricky to wade through. But I really like you guys reading of that and i think that that makes a lot of sense and i think um that's good and i like that <laughs> the whole movie in a way is really content not to give you a clean right. meaning for sure it, it, it's it's very yeah. much okay with being messy and complicated and just raising lots of questions with no answers uh so so it's a it's a difficult movie in some ways while being extremely pleasurable to watch so it's it's got that really interesting blend of it's it's both alienating in its difficulty and not alienating at all because it's so much fun and it's so funny. Right. It really reminds me of Don Quixote in a lot of ways, which is really funny if you've ever like read or or seen any version of Don Quixote, you know that it's like funny because there's this absurdness to it where Don Quixote is so, you know, embedded in his delusions that he's he's so sure he's a knight. The story of Don Quixote extends to like everyone that he comes in contact with. Wait, where it's like, are they crazy or is he crazy? Right. That's kind of what Don Quixote wants to like ask us. And this movie's doing the same thing where it's doing that incredibly dark thing. But it's like, wait, is Regan crazy or are you <laughs> critic or Mike Shiner, that character or like any of the other, uh, the Zach Galifianakis character is one of my favorites in here. But it's like, you know, they're kind of all caught up in this rat race. And it's like, well, who's crazier about it? Who's the person here who's most delusional? I'm not so sure that it's Riggin, right? Right. <laughs> your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, yeah, why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from Birdman. Trisha, do you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So the original ending of this had a really different ending. Really? What was it? Inyati 2 was originally going to have Johnny Depp in like full Jack Sparrow get up makeup costume show up in like Reagan's dressing room at the end and start talking to him. Interesting. Wait, I read a different version of this that's like <laughs> similar. I read one, this is on Wikipedia, but there was an idea that it would actually be Johnny Depp like putting on a Reagan costume. Oh, interesting. Playing Reagan in a play about Reagan's life with a Pirates of the Caribbean poster behind him. Okay. And then a voice in his head as Jack Sparrow talking to him like Birdman talked to Riggin. The cycle continuing. Yeah. Either way, either way, it's it's interesting because it's a little bit of a a different kind of interpretation of like what a popcorn movie is, right? Rather than like superhero movie. It's like, well, it's a franchise thing. It's Johnny Depp and yeah, kind of blurring those lines. And um, I'm just really glad it didn't go that way. I feel like it ends up being much more timeless. I mean, I'm curious to know if there's like in 50 years, will there be a superhero franchise malaise? Like, will th will we think the same thing about popcorn movies? And Alex loves to call them products. <laughs> will we like, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I can't predict what's going to happen, you know, with accuracy in the movie industry uh, over the next 20, 30, 50 years. But I do think that by making it a little bit more universal and especially like there's a version of this movie that's a, just about movies where he like is trying to make a, 
a comeback by doing a serious Oscar movie instead of a play, right? So I think that this movie is wisely approached where it's like, theater is a very old art form. We're going to kind of go back to that as a contrast to film um, instead of saying two different kinds of movies because that'd be a little muddy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're going to generically reference superhero movies without necessarily i mean obviously the batman the michael keaton batman movies are the clear reference here but there's still like enough vagueness to sort of the birdman character superheroes are you know a little bit of an older comic book kind of construction so i think that not doing something quite so timely as of a reference is a really wise decision here and just kind of trying to make it a little bit more these are universal questions that all artists have dealt with across all centuries, as opposed to here's Johnny Depp and Pirates of the Caribbean. So <laughs> right. that's my lesson. Be a very different ending <laughs> right. in 2021. Yeah. Right. And they, they, you know, they name drop, you know, Robert Downey Jr. or Ryan Gosling and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, you know, those are actors of the right. time. Like it's different than I, I feel like that still lets it be timeless in the way that you're saying. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Alex, what about you? What's your lesson? Well, I think just circling back around to the long take. For me, this movie really opens up my mind to like how you can reappropriate a cinematic technique to to function in a, in a way differently than it normally functions. And I always thought of long takes as being for a very specific thing. And it's really brave and bold and like a huge risk. And like nobody thought that it was a good idea to do this movie as a long take. Like, I was reading about, you know, planning it out. They had to basically do like post-production before production. Like everything was flipped upside down. Everything had to be perfect. Everything had to be visualized. Visual effects had to be figured out. It's not a movie that you would naturally think it's worth it to do all that. But it was. It, it was worth it for like these ineffable reasons that aren't literal. They aren't just, oh, it's going to be a really awesome action scene in a long take and it'll be more intense because there's no cuts a lot of subtle reasons for why you should do it so i think my lesson is just wow good for inyaritu for having the confidence to envision that it was worth it to do it this way even mm -hmm. though he was using this form to do something ineffable and kind of more than the sum of its parts mm -hmm. uh, just very impressive repurposing of a technique to do something really subtle and nuanced yeah it's definitely a movie where even if i go Hey, is the, is the single take actually adding anything? I don't know. But then when I imagine a version of the movie that's not a single take, I'm like, that seems like a worse movie. Right. It adds something that you can't put your finger on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And very bold to include so many mirrors. Yeah. Yes. Some of the time it really, really works. And some of the time it doesn't quite. Mm -hmm. And it's a whole... My relationship with cameras and mirrors is a complicated <laughs> right. one. Weirdly, yeah, Black Swan does a lot of that too. Interesting that there's a lot of performer movies, long take mirror stuff. It's another podcast. Mirrors are thematic, Michael. Well, yes, yes. When the audience stands and applauds for him shooting his face, like it really reminds me of Vanda Black Swan. The same just energy of an artist like completely yes. sacrificing themselves to uproarious applause. It was very similar, you know, climax there. Yeah. Awesome. Brian, what's your lesson? Uh, well, we talked a lot about the theme and I know Trisha, you talked a lot about theme on the, uh, the Oxide films podcast too. And I think for me, it's not even about what themes of this movie are. It's, how present they are because there's so many movies where mm -hmm. the theme is sort of buried and and i appreciate that we talk about how like you want movie stuff to be invisible but i also think i don't want to have to watch a movie three times to start to understand what it's trying to tell me or what it's trying to talk about and then of course some movies you know you hear the term preachy where the theme is like right, right in your damn face and you're <laughs> like if you don't agree with this thing then you can't watch this movie and i think birdman's a really really good example of a movie where i feel like it's the right amount of theme it's it's very clear from the first time you watch the movie that it is discussing this idea you know you have the opening quote as you said trisha you have the sign on his mirror a thing is a thing not what is said of the thing 
Right. So again, that's right off the quote about wanting to be um, beloved. Then you have uh, Emma Stone's monologue where she says you confuse love for adoration. And then you have the critics monologue and Riggins monologue where it's all about sort of like, what are we doing? What is what basically what is the point of life? Is it about being happy yourself or is it about other people telling you you're good at a thing and, you know, that all that stuff? There's so much wrestling with this idea, but still leaving it really open to interpretation. Mm -hmm. And I just really love that this is a movie that right off the bat says, here's an idea that we're going to explore. We're not going to pretend that we're not trying to explore that idea. The way some movies are like, oh, the, the theme's there. When you look for it, this movie's like, look, it's right here. And it's, it's a bold movie. So I think it, it can allow itself to do that as opposed to other movies where it might feel a little weird if it was just a sort of, you know, indoor drama where people keep bringing up thematic ideas and stuff, you know? <laughs> right. This is a movie where, like, by the style of the movie, it's allowed to be sort of, like, bold with its thematic presentation. And plot. I mean, because that's the whole thing. Is sure. that Yeah. Riggin and Mike, and they're, like, representing, like, sort of two different sides, the, the dichotomy right. that we talked about. So it's, like, at every single level, the plot, the characters, the whole entire thing, the world mm -hmm. of the story is all just theme. Yeah. It rules. Yeah. Well, and that kind of ties into my lesson a little bit, which which we've talked about is, you know, the design of all of the characters and that it is almost ensemble-y, but doesn't quite feel like it crosses that threshold. But mm -hmm. but it is so when I'm watching it, I do care as much about everybody else around him by the end as I mm -hmm. do him in a lot of ways. And, mm -hmm. and so it, it kind of, you know, we talked about this in the Hidden Figures episode, but having subplots that are there to resonate the theme, but are also really fun and just like help round out the world and give details about this universe that the protagonist is navigating through. I just found myself really among all the other things that I was impressed by. Yeah, the design of the the other characters, Naomi, Naomi Watts character, Andrea Riseborough character. I love her. Yeah, She's and so like, good. And there, there's only a few moments, like you only need a couple moments to make an arc and tell a story, but because they're all there peppered throughout, it, it makes the film feel so much more rich and like I've gotten so much more from it than if it had just focused on Michael Keaton's character, for right. example. Yeah, definitely. Which isn't part of a lesson, but I also love watching Edward Norton fight Michael Keaton. That's so good. I love it so much. He like when he like gets like ready to do it and he does the little the hand like, look over here, and then I'm gonna attack like watch it. I just he's so funny. Sorry. That has nothing to do with what I was saying. It's just It's a great fist fight. Yeah. Yes. Yes. There's also weird meta things with Edward Norton and fighting. Anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. Also, yeah, the movie, like the marketing and the credits and stuff, they do sort of show you the seven main characters, like the seven main cast members. It's not mm -hmm. Michael Keaton is Birdman. Also, here's some other people who are also in this movie. It does do a very good job of saying this movie is about this group of people. Right. Even if obviously some of them have more screen time than others. And just what a group of people. Make yeah. a movie with all those people all the time is also. <laughs> also, Amy Ryan, I love you being everything. Yes. yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. She's so good. Awesome. Well, Birdman, lots of good things we have to say. Why don't we also go around and talk about what we've been watching recently? Alex, what have you been watching recently? So last week, I checked out the documentary New York Times Presents Framing Britney Spears, which is mm -hmm. New York Times Presents is like the name of the documentary series. The episode is called Framing Britney Spears. It's on FX and Hulu. And it's really fascinating. I kind of watched it on a whim, but it's a fascinating feature length documentary look at the cultural response to Britney Spears back in her heyday, and then the legal battle that's happening right now with the conservatorship with her father. Basically, Britney Spears is essentially being bound by this legal agreement that's usually saved for like old or infirm people to just kind of manage their estate. Mm -hmm. And she basically was put into this legal status after kind of having a meltdown in the middle of her career. And has never been released from it, even though she's been performing and is a, a you know an adult. <laughs> What's fascinating is that the documentary is not just about that legal battle, but it's also about the context for what led to her quote unquote meltdowns. It's really shocking to remember and to kind of recontextualize and realize what was going on when we were all like kids and teenagers in the tabloid paparazzi world. It's pretty horrifying. Just the the complete insane scrutiny of 
pop culture women and the like aggressive, insane paparazzi presence. Mm-hmm. It was like the peak of all that. And right. the documentary is like very sad and very disturbing, actually, in just showing the breakdown of this basically girl. I mean, she her first like music video, she was like 16, 16 or yeah. This basically innocent girl from a small town gets thrust into this pop culture landscape and yeah. you just see just the horrible context of all that. You know, I have a friend actually who's in the documentary. Uh, he's part of the hashtag free Britney movement. Cool. And I always Ooh. thought like, oh, that's kind of a cute hobby you have. Like, but now I get it. I'm like, this is really fascinating, strange case and, and a really sad story. Mm-hmm. So I actually re- recommend it. Very well made documentary. And I want to check out the other New York Times Presents docs because they're very well done. Nice. Brian, what about you? I watched a movie this weekend, the title of which can only be said in character. Uh, it was Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. <laughs> Yay! Written by and starring Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo. And it's the dumbest movie I've seen in a long time. And I loved it so much. <laughs> <Nice>. It's glorious. <laughs> It feels like an SNL movie from the 90s, early 2000s, you know, and if you turn your brain off and you go in expecting nothing more than that, you're going to get what you're expecting and be pleasantly surprised in some moments. Excellent. Nice. That's what I've heard about it. Mm -hmm. I like a good dumb movie. Zoolander was like almost on my top 10 for the odds. Wow. Wow. I really liked Zoolander. It definitely feels like Zoolander. It's sort of like one of these movies where the plot is just like a thin way to get these two actresses to just sort of sometimes improv, sometimes just say like amazing jokes. You know, it's the kind of movie where you could watch any five minutes and be like, there's so much brilliance in there. And then when you watch it all in once, you're like, that was really dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. Nice. So I watched recently uh, the first couple episodes, but I want to talk about just the first one of My Next Guest Needs No Introduction with David Letterman Mm. on Netflix. And so the first episode is his conversation with Barack Obama. And I'd been wanting to watch it when it came out, but was not in the correct mental state. But given recent administrative changes... (laughs) You could bring yourself to do it. I was, yeah, more okay (laughs) doing it. And it was really, really interesting. I wasn't sure what to expect. You know, is it just going to be David Letterman and the guests like chatting the whole time? And that's what a lot of it is. But then they cut to footage of David Letterman going somewhere and interviewing someone related to the guests. And so it's him and John Lewis, you know, walking across the bridge in Alabama. So it's intercutting, you know, them with the conversation and it it adds this kind of cool context to to what they're talking about and then especially toward the end of the conversation i really liked something they were talking about which i think fits you know as we're talking about birdman and what it means to be an artist you know obama was very comfortable talking about all the things he didn't know how to do and all the things that he got wrong in life and both of them talked about how lucky they were and how much luck Mm. played a role in where they were. And it resonated with me and kind of made me realize that I I like it when successful people can honestly talk about what got them to where they are, because I think that helps combat some of the things that are even in Birdman of this need to feel like you are the super man, basically the super successful, you are a special person and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so many, most of the people that are super successful got really lucky also. And so judging yourself one to one against them, I think is not mentally healthy or useful in developing, you know, whatever skills you're trying to develop so anyway so it ended up being a a really emotional conversation not just because of whatever political things that were being discussed but also just this idea of a way of portraying success to people and i think especially young people that i think is really positive and there should be more of so my next guest needs no introduction later on there's a conversation with kanye west and i'm sure i will feel just as emotional and man moved by it i'm very very curious to see that one i'll check back in with you yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. Trisha, what have you been watching? One of our patrons on the Discord very kindly alerted me that the BBC made a docu-series apparently just for me. I don't know, it just checks all of my boxes <laughs> so perfectly. There's a docu-series called A Stitch in Time, and it is about, it's a fashion historian, and she uses classical like paintings and portraiture to investigate 
certain kinds of historical fashion and different eras in historical fashion. The name of the host, uh, who is the fashion historian, her name is Amber Butchart. And she teams up with a, what is called a traditional tailor, who is a tailor who uses only historically accurate methods to sew things. Wow. And they recreate the outfit from the painting that they're investigating. Nice. And then also the host goes around and speaks to other experts, other historians, people who have studied different like parts of the different subjects' lives and can provide more context. So I watched this on Curiosity Street, which is a streaming service that also sponsors our show and is awesome. <laughs> and it just has like a lot of cool content on it anyway. They only have six episodes of this show. I wish there were more. But the array that they have is really fascinating where they have like a Marie Antoinette portrait, but not maybe one of the more traditional ones that you'd expect. They have one of like the Black Prince, who was this like prince that not a lot of people know about from, I'm going to say 15th century. I don't really remember. Hmm. But they like have a suit of armor. They don't make the armor, but they do make the like quilting part that goes over it. And then they put the host in the outfit and she like has like swinging a sword around and nice. i don't know they're just really really interesting array of different styles of clothing and sort of what it means for history that these are the kind of clothes that have been preserved in in portraiture over the years so it's called a stitch in time and it's a bbc produced documentary series docuseries and you can watch it on curiosity stream sponsor of our little show here yeah, that does sound like a show made for you. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yes, Curiosity Stream is the sponsor of this episode. So you can go to curiositystream.com slash screenplay and check it out. What's the name of the show again? A Stitch in Time. A Stitch in Time. And when you use our offer code, you get 26% off their annual plan and you get free access to Nebula, which is the streaming service that has a bunch of cool educational YouTubers. Lessons from the Screenplay is on there. There's also Just Right, Sage's channel, a bunch of the video essayists, Lindsay Ellis, tons of people. So you get all that and a stitch in time at curiositystream.com slash screenplay. Uh, sorry, I also started watching another like historical homes documentary series <laughs> that they have on there, which is also really cool. Nice. If you're anything like Trisha, sign up. There's lots of things to watch. <laughs> you might end up going down a bunch of really amazing rabbit holes about history and <laughs> homes and fashion. Awesome. This has been our conversation about Birdman. Or the unexpected virtue of ignorance. We want to say a big thank you, as always, to the patrons that make this show possible. If you enjoy this podcast, tell a friend, help us grow. Also, we have a Spotify Q&A update. We asked people what their favorite bittersweet film was. And we got a wide array of answers like Casablanca, Lost in Translation, The Life Aquatic, <laughs> with Steve Zissou. Mm. All right, I see it. Uh, Call Me By Your Name, Atonement. So it was, it was really fun going through and looking at all those answers. And we have a question for Spotify listeners for this episode, which is, what is your favorite long take? Let us know the take and what movie it's from, because some movies have many. Uh, so we look forward to hearing your answers on that. Beyond the Screenplay is produced by Vince Major, and our editor is Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker. I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.